You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. One of the foundational ideas in our modern world is that most of our problems, if not all of our problems, can be resolved by political, technological, or economic means. There is a great illusion of control in our modern day and age, that we can control things, that any problems that we have, we have the ability to deal with them. Contemporary society and culture has an emphasis on human potential and human agency. And there is an unbridled belief in the possibility of progress through those means. Political means, technological means, and economic means. And all this is, really, is a secular version of salvation. And here's why we can say that. It's a secular version of salvation because religious aspirations are attached to these means, political, technological, and economic. There is a religious focus on these possibilities. All human problems are converted into technical problems. And if the techniques to solve certain problems don't exist yet, well, we just need to hold on a little bit until those techniques are made available. And they inevitably will be made available because of technology and the sciences and the great possibility and potential For human progress, there is a great faith in the inevitability of human progress. You may not realize it, but these are underlying assumptions of the world in which we live. Think about it. As a culture, we throw ourselves into politics, demanding more and more from the political process and getting no more than we ever did. One scholar calls this this faith in the political process, the ratchet effect, where there's an ever-expanding demand on government to do something about the problems, and political action is invested with more and more religious significance. This is what can save us. This is what can make things right, which is one of the reasons why, in our, uh, our age of technologically enhanced rage, the fights on social media take on such a pitched fever. Because the commitments of each side are invested with religious significance. Why is there an ever-growing, ever-growing weight that's placed upon the political process? Yeah, we can lose faith in a particular political candidate, but no one really ever challenges faith in the political process to heal our greatest problems. Why is that the case? Because we have faith in the potential of politics and government to save us. To save us. It's secular salvation. As a culture, we consume and produce more and more technology. Because through our technology, there is the promise of taking control. If I just get the new iPhone, if I just get that new gadget, My life will be so much better. Things will be different. I won't miss meetings then. Well, then I'll have organization in my life. Then I'll be okay. If I just get the new gadget, if I can just get that new system, 
Whatever that, that technology offers, I'm, I'm after it. Why? Because therein lies the opportunity for my salvation. Whether I assign that language to it or not, that's ultimately what I'm after. Pretty soon, there are, I mean, you hear, you hear these, these, there are these websites, life hack, hack your life. All of the problems in life can be hacked. Okay, so I'm going to be honest. Life hack is pretty awesome. Um, I do like all the little tricks they teach. Like how many of you knew that the, the little hole in the cutting board, you thought it was a handle for carrying it, but that's actually what you put over the thing you're trying to scrape it into, and then you don't get it off the board? Come on. Y'all need to learn. Y'all need to learn about that life hack. No, but pretty soon, really, there's going to be an expectation that, that somehow people are going to be able to hardwire an auto-parent button into our kids. And then we're just going to hit the button and we're going to have well-adjusted individuals that grow up. There is a great dependence on our technology to do something for us of religious significance because we're looking to our technology for salvation, whether we assign that language to it or not. This is a secular version of salvation. All of this, here's the, here's the out, 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 outpouring after this commitment. All of this results in a culture of great anxiety and great fear and great insecurity. Because ultimately what it does is it puts our hopes for salvation back upon ourselves. It places our hope for salvation in the most insecure places. That's what it does. And it makes us strive and strive. It's chasing the wind. That's what ever-deepening, religiously cast political engagement does. It exhausts you. It chews you up and spits you out. You think that you can find the solutions through the political means, but it's like chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that isn't there, really. It's an illusion. And the same thing with our technologies. All of this results in a culture of incessant, exhaustive striving, because we're collectively living into an illusion. And we're anxious and fearful. Because ultimately self-salvation is self-defeating. This serves, friends, why do I bring this up? This serves to reveal the uniqueness of the Christian account of rescue. The Christian account of salvation. There is something very profound about the difference between the message of the Christian faith and the message of our society with respect to salvation. Our culture is no less religious than it, than it has ever been. That religious commitment has been taken off of things related to the church and the scriptures, and it has simply been placed upon politics, technology, and economics. But guess what? It's the devil that they think that they have removed, but the one that has come back is seven times stronger. It's that notion. So we need to understand the distinctiveness of the Christian faith. The, dis the distinctiveness of the Christian account of salvation. The gospel is a message that stands in remarkable, glorious contrast to the message of our age. And my question for you, are you exhausted? Are you tired? Are you anxious? Do you get fearful when you're not in control? Do you find yourself 
waking up in the morning and going zero to 60 in your heart. No time to breathe. You can't even drink your coffee in peace. This message is for you. Do you find yourself with an ever-increasing list of accolades and decreasing satisfaction and security in your life? Are you getting more and more letters behind your name and less and less satisfaction in life? This message is for you. Are you getting more and more numbers in your bank account and less and less security in your life? This message is for you. This message is a call to us to detach our religious commitments to politics, economics, and technology and to place them in the only, the only place where they are truly satisfied, and that is in the Lord. I ask these questions because I'm really inviting you to join the club. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm inviting you to join the club. This is a daily process for us. And so I want to get into this text this morning. I'm not going to hold you long. We're going to listen to one of the most famous and important passages of Scripture, Exodus 14. And we're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to see the paradigm of salvation and the practice of salvation. The paradigm of salvation. What does salvation, according to Scripture, look like? What, what are the components? We covered it from a systematic theology perspective in the fall. But I want to cover it now from a story perspective in our text for this morning, because there are some things that come out that are really beautiful and powerful and corrective. I want to look at the paradigm of salvation, because it, it's still God's way today. But I want to look at the practice of salvation. In other words, how do you digest this? How do you get this into your life? How do you begin to live in line with the truth of God's salvation? How can you begin to train your heart to live into it in a more beautiful and powerful way? So let's look at our first point, the paradigm of salvation. I want to roll through this text, and I want to just hit some things that, that this text is giving us about the salvation of God. Okay? Look at verses 2 through 4. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. And the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Look, the first thing you need to see is that the Lord orchestrates the situation. The Lord orchestrates their troubles and everything else in their life to awaken them to who they really are and to who he really is. And God has never stopped doing that. If you think of yourself as basically filled with potential for accomplishing your self-salvation, you need to come back to this text and see who you really are. Because when we look at Israel, we're seeing who we really are. A weak, needy, directionless people apart from God. No ability to defend ourselves. No ability to direct ourselves. No ability to shield ourselves to think our way out of the problem or to spend our way out of the problem. This is who we really are. But at the same time, we see who God really is. God orchestrates this thing because, look, as if it wasn't enough to reveal his power for his people to, to walk through the plagues and to systematically shut down all of the gods of Egypt through the plagues 
If that wasn't enough, God says, here's my grand finale. It's like the fireworks on the 4th of July. It's, it's pretty impressive, but then there's the grand finale. God's given them a, somewhat of a grand finale here as he judges Egypt in a, with a finality. And he accomplishes their salvation through extraordinary means. So we see this in the text. God orchestrates the situations of trouble in your life. Don't resent the troubles of your situations. Don't resent the difficulties of your circumstances. Why? Because by God's grace, these are tools of instruction for you. For you to see who you really are, because it takes a lifetime for you to really take it in. Who are you? And to show you who God really is, because that too will take eternity to figure out who he really is. And God uses those circumstances of difficulty, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations, the sufferings, the difficulties. God uses it all. Not one ingredient in your life is wasted in God's recipe. It all has a place. And by the time that he finishes, you, if, when you see with his eyes back over your life, you wouldn't, have changed, you wouldn't have changed what he brought into your life. The next thing we see, verses 6 through 8. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. Here's the next thing we see about salvation, the paradigm. We are pursued by an enemy we simply cannot defeat by ourselves, and we will come face to face with evil we cannot deal with. We are pursued by an enemy we cannot defeat. Again, it rolls right out of the first point. One of the things that they see about themselves is that they are not able to deal with the enemy that is pursuing them. Notice the emphasis by the narrator in the chariots of Pharaoh, in the, the mustering of his army. Chariots were the height of technology in that day, the height of technological warfare. It was like saying they had all the nuclear arsenal. And you're out there with some sticks and stones. That's the equivalent here. He's coming with chariots. Their enemy, they are not able to withstand. The enemy pursuing them, they cannot deal with. And if you are honest, your greatest enemies, you cannot deal with. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we ultimately see in Christian theology, the greatest enemies of humanity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world as a system of of interpretation in which God is not a part of it. A way of reading the world. That's what worldliness is. A way of reading the world that does not really take God into account. And then we begin to act as if that's the way that things are. It becomes the assumption of the age. And we get caught up into that narrative, don't we? We get caught up into that. And that's why we accumulate like we do, fearfully. That's why we are so anxious. That's why we are so angry. That's why we are in so much of the situations that we're in. The world, the flesh. You think you're strong? Try to deny yourself something that you really want for any length of time. Just a silly example. I love my mom. But she used to have this thing that she would do. Where she would buy a pie at the store. And she didn't want to just 
cut a big hunk of pie out, right? But all through the day, she would cut just a little sliver. And by the end of the day, she ate like three quarters of it. She's a skinny little thing, but she would work on some pie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's the thing for us. Like the silliest little examples, we struggle to control ourselves. And when it gets down to the real nitty gritty, we are not able to control our impulses and our appetites by our own strength, by our own willpower. And a lot of times when we get a hold of addictions, we haven't gotten a hold of addictions. We just switch addictions. It just goes out in different directions on our own resources. And then the devil, the devil. We've talked about this before, but Jesus and every one of the apostles writes about the fearsomeness of the devil. And we are the ones who are more or less blinded and not even attentive to the fact that we have an enemy who wants to kill to steal and to destroy, who wants to devour us, who preys on us like a roaring lion. We are helpless against these foes. And then the greatest foe of all, death. We are helpless. We can try to extend our lives. We can get new medicines, new surgeries. We can fight to find a cure to cancer. But at the end of the day, we all are going to stand face to face with that foe. And we are helpless on our own to deal with it. Mankind has long searched for a fountain of youth to abate that day, but to no avail. We are pursued by an enemy that we simply cannot defeat by ourselves. And remember what, this, what the sea represented to people in this culture and time. It was, the, it was the representation of chaos and evil. This is what the sea represented to them. It was terrifying to them. They are face to face with the sea. They have an enemy chasing them from behind that they cannot defeat. And they have something before them that, that's impossible to overcome. This gives us something of the paradigm of salvation. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing it? Verses 11 through 12. Look at verses 11 through 12. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Here's the next paradigm. Left to ourselves, we would prefer slavery and cannot even muster clear thoughts of real freedom. Left to ourselves, we would call freedom bondage and bondage freedom. They are griping about being set free from slavery in Egypt. They cannot see that to this very moment they are protected by the very God who got them out in the first place. And they would long to have never experienced that freedom. That's where we are in our dispositions. That's where we are in our desires. That's where our culture is. Why are you breaking me out? So much of our, our lives as Christians is this backward looking, oh, I wish. It's like, we're, have you seen that meme called sanctification where an, an elderly gentleman falls on an escalator and he just keeps being taken up? And it says sanctification. So much of our lives 
is that we're longing, we're looking back for the old life, for the old attachments, because that's how sick we are. Our problem is so much deeper than we recognize. Look at verses 13 through 14. 13 through 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What we see in this paradigm of salvation is God's mediator speaks the word of grace and promise over God's people. He speaks the word of promise and grace over God's people. He says, quiet down all that foolish talk and see the salvation of the Lord. And you know what this turns into? The paradigm of salvation is all about grace. It's all about grace. Listen, I want you to imagine this. This is an astonishing thing. When we move down Into the rest of the story, not only in salvation do we see God getting in to interrupt, getting in between God's people and their enemy. Not only do we see that, but we also see the mediator creating an unthinkable pathway that they would have on their way out. A pathway out, because guess what? The mediator was somebody who knew the way through. Now, we're going to hit that in a second, but let's look at the grace thing, right? Think about the mediator. Think about the mediator. Where did Moses begin? Where did Moses begin? He began his life being put into the Nile, being put into the death trap. And he is the only child we have in the narrative of the Hebrew boys who makes it out of the death trap alive. In other words, the mediator knew how to enter into the water And to get out of it alive. God's mediator knew the way through. And he provides an unimaginable means. You know, God could have just instantaneously made a bunch of boats show up. But he doesn't give them boats. Because he doesn't want anyone mistaking this for being a natural rescue. This is a supernatural story of rescue. He opens up the waters. And I want you to think about the grace of this. Hear me. They're walking through. The text says that the wall of water was on their right and the wall of water was on their left. And this gets into the power of grace and the assurance of faith. Now, there were probably some people in that great cloud of of people who were walking through down that that dry aisle that had been opened up by the mediator, and they were like, yeah, yeah, wall of water. What you want, Pharaoh? What you want? Yeah, yeah. they were doing an electric slide down that, down that aisle, right? They were, they were absolutely confident. And then there were some people who were like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, there's water powder. I don't know how we're going to make it. Oh, God, I can't. Tell me when we get there. Tell me when we get there. But it wasn't about the size and the strength of their faith. It was about the God in whom they trusted. You may have weak, little, pitiful faith, but it finds a strong Savior. Martin Luther said, 
It doesn't matter if you're carrying the gold in a paper sack or a leather satchel. We both carry the same riches. That is Christ Jesus. That's good news. And we see it. It doesn't matter how, how puny their faith was as they were going through in between those walls of water. They were rescued by the Lord. The fulfillment of his covenant promises. And we see in verses 27 through 31, in our helplessness, the Lord fights our battle to defeat the enemies. And in the end, not one of the enemies remained. Not one. An old school cat named John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Now, what we see is that the sea is the instrument of salvation for Israel, but it's the instrument of judgment for the Egyptians. So again, we see this theme of salvation through judgment. And what that does is that leads us forward, because here's the deal. We all know that there was no real substantive difference between Israel and Egypt, except God set his promises on Israel. And it gets us going forward about the judgment of God on evil, the justice of God. God must judge evil, and he will because he is just. But what do we do when the injustice is found in our own hearts? This leads us forward to the cross. The cross was an instrument of judgment for Jesus, but it was an instrument of salvation for us. And he came through on the other side. This mediator, Moses, leads us to the true and greater mediator who blazes a trail through the grave so that we can follow. This is the good news of this text. And John Owen once said that one day we will rise conquerors and we will see sin and evil dead at our feet. Not a one will remain. Think about that. All of the lusts of your heart will lie dead at your feet when you rise to be crowned. All of your pride and your selfishness will lie dead at your feet. The grave itself dead at your feet. You will live to see your greatest enemies dead at your feet because the Lord is a warrior and he fights for his people. This is the paradigm of salvation. This is the paradigm of salvation. Let's get to the practice of salvation briefly. This text encourages us to get this story and this salvation into our very selves. But as we have said before, we, we often fail to think our ways into to new patterns of living. But we can practice our way into new ways of thinking. That's often very helpful. And so I want us to think about throwing off particularly some unhealthy thinking patterns. Okay? How can you begin to work this into the daily prayer project, your daily prayer, your rhythms of life, your liturgies, our liturgy as a community? We need, as we live in community, to throw off some stinking thinking. Okay? The first thing. Yeah. To throw off the stinking thinking. Now, listen, here are some unhealthy patterns, okay? First, emotional thinking. We are in a day and age where if you feel it, it must be right. We, we 
we take the message from our emotions rather than telling our emotions where to take their place. So we must throw off emotional thinking. And what facts do you bring to bear on your emotions? The facts of the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about you in your union with Christ? What do the scriptures say about God and what God is like? What does the scriptures say about providence? What does the scriptures say about our struggle with sin? What does the scripture say about forgiveness? What does the scripture say about community? I'm not asking for more and more politicized thinking entering into the way that we deal with one another. I'm talking about a different way of thinking. Throwing off the emotional thinking. Next, what psychologists call catastrophizing. Where you think that the worst case scenario is the most likely scenario. It's going to be terrible. You wake up in the morning, this is going to be a terrible day. This meeting is going to go terribly. Listen, when you look at the text, we don't have warrant for expecting worst case scenario from God. Do you see that in the text? There is no warrant here. When the people start bugging out and getting irrational, they have no warrant for it. All they've ever seen God do is look out for them. All they've ever seen God do is fulfill his promises. And that's all you've ever seen him do. You have never seen God let you down on any of his promises. You may have assumed that some of your desires were actual promises of God, but they're not. God does not drop his promises. God does not fail his people. We see that in the text. So we have no reason for catastrophizing, expecting the worst case scenario to be the most likely scenario. Ban that from your mind. At least know to name it. Next, overgeneralizing. Overgeneralizing. It always happens this way. Your life has been nothing but a string of goodness from the hand of the Lord. But somehow, you, when something bad happens, it always happens like this. My plans always get ruined. My life is always hard. Overgeneralizing. Next, mind reading. Mind reading God. Assuming that you know why God has done what he has done in this particular moment. Mind reading God. God's probably mad at me. God's probably trying to get me. God's probably just trying to make a point with me because he's, you know, he's a stern, stern father. Right? You'd be jacking the song all up. That's not what the song says. He's a good father. And that's what the scriptures say. He's a good father. Don't try to mind read God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And in due time, he will exalt you. He will instruct you. Also, be aware of neg negative filtering. You know what negative filtering is? Think of it. A filter catches stuff that's coming through. When you have a negative filter, all you pick out of life are the, the worst things. There are all kind of good things that God's doing in your life, but you negative filter all of the bad the stuff that's difficult to deal with. You know, you, you know what that sounds like? You sit down with someone and they say, hey, what's going on? You're like, job, terrible, kids, crazy, marriage, hard. That's my life, right? Okay. There's another way. To think about that too. If you remove the negative filter, you will always find that life in Christ tips the scales always in the favor of his goodness and his mercies and his grace and his kindness over the difficult and the challenging. You want to know how I know that? Because the scriptures teach it, but also I've learned this from saints. A dear brother, mentor, colleague, uh, Dr. Howard Griffith, about a year ago, found out he was diagnosed with cancer. And he battled for these last couple months. 
and it, it looked like every day his faith got stronger and purer, and he, he just gloried in the grace of the Lord as he suffered through the difficulties of cancer ravaging his body. And when we gathered around his bed in the hospital as he was dying, he just, he, it was like he couldn't get words around the goodness of God. He was so moved by the mercy of God to him. In our last correspondence, I sent him a note of encouragement about the high priestly ministry of Jesus on his behalf. And that even though sometimes we might feel like we have slipped off of the radar of God, slipped off of the mind of God, we seem insignificant to ourselves. His thoughts toward us are so strong, so sure, so focused, so intent on doing us good. And he just wrote back the best. The best. And he went home this past week. He didn't lose his battle with cancer. He won because he finished in Jesus. He finished in the Lord, and now he's crowned. You and I need to throw off the negative filters because God is good. I can't think of anyone in my life over these last couple months who had more reason to complain than my dear brother Howard. And he had nothing but praise to the Lord as he endured. We need to practice our salvation, knowing that the Lord is for us. He's fighting for us. He is our sure defense. He is good, and his grace abounds to us. So let us be reminded. I don't know what kind of circumstances you're staring at this week. I don't know what kind of enemies you may feel are pursuing you this week. I don't know what kind of Red Sea is before you, but I know one thing. This text tells me that there is not a kind of trouble you can get yourself into that God can't get you out of. He brings them into this tight place to assure all the saints for all of time that he's never met a problem he could not handle. And when you know that God is for you and not against you, it will transform your life in this world and your life in relationships and your life of service and everything else about you. So see the salvation of the Lord. Be still and let him fight your battle. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.